Good morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, which I know that's almost silly to say, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We'll be reading verses 13 through 18. As we look at what's fascinating is you think about this particular event and the significance of it. And Matthew is the only one that records it this way. Normally, a very significant event in the Gospels and in the life of Jesus is recorded by at least the first three Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sometimes by all four. But fascinatingly enough, Matthew's the only one that records it like this. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged them, the disciples, to tell no one that he was the Christ. Lord, we confess and praise you, Jesus, our Savior, Messiah, the Christ. As the church, one solid foundation, only foundation, is our confession of you, so we say it together this morning that you are Lord and Savior. And we put our faith and our hope and our trust in nothing else but Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Lord, we pray that your spirit will open up our eyes this morning to be able to see and hear the things that need to be heard, that our minds would be quickened to grasp the realities of what you're showing us through your word this morning and to walk in faith according to the commands and the calling that you have given each of us and us as a church. And we pray that this would be so, O Lord, not by our power, not by our might, but by the Spirit of the one true and living God. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So, geography matters. I've tried to emphasize this point in this series that we've been going through in the book of John. And I come back to it even here in this break from John in the subject of Matthew chapter 16 to say it, that geography matters. When the biblical authors mention a geographic spot, it's not just literary color or fluff that they're adding. When they mention a geographic location, it's important. You say, well, Brian, how do you know this? Well, here's a pro tip. The biblical authors were forced to an economy of written words. See, they had no freedom to use words that were not necessary. They did not have pen and paper like we have today. We can run to Walmart and for less than $5, I have enough pen and paper to write a couple hundred pages worth of stuff. 
They didn't have that luxury. They were forced to write on what was called a codex. It was a book, similar to the way we think of books today, that was assembled by sewing together pages of papyri. And the papyri was made by gluing together sheets of paper-like material from the papyrus reed. They did not have ink pens. They had this typical reed-type plant structure piece that was shaped into a writing instrument. And then they had an ink well that they had to dip it into to get ink on and to write with ink. Both the codex and the ink were expensive, even though the codex was the poor man's writing material. The wealthy people had parchment. Most of the biblical authors didn't have that luxury. They were forced to use the cheap codex. In fact, the guys who study ancient manuscripts of the scriptures, they literally cannot find a piece of scripture written on parchment prior to the 4th century when Constantine came to power as the Roman emperor. Before that, everything's written on these cheap codex booklets and those were expensive especially if you weren't rich so you see they just could not afford to waste ink and precious writing space on words that were unnecessary perhaps i should take a clue from them as i prepare my sermons as a result of everything they write is important even when they mention the physical location of an event let's just look at this moment In Matthew chapter 16, now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Let's take a little trip to the district of Caesarea Philippi. I wish I could show you with the pictures and such the area of the called Bonus there in northern Israel today, specifically the Temple of Pon. Today, it's just ruins, nothing really left that looks like what the structures did in Jesus' day. But it was tremendous. First off, you had these beautiful stair-step terraced fountains flowing out from under this gigantic cliff there. And one of those waters flowing from underneath the cliff were actually one of the three headwaters of the Jordan River. Just think about that for a second. You're standing at one of the headwaters of the Jordan River, something that's so important to Jewish history and to biblical truth. And there is an idol temple, one of the headwaters for the Jordan River has an idol temple there. Water's flowing from underneath the cliff, from underneath this structure. There today, there's just this very large opening that looks kind of like a cave. And in Jesus' day, that's where the Temple of Pond was. It was built back into the, the opening itself. I won't call it a cave because that's not an accurate term. But it was a Roman temple built there in this large opening. This was massive, this opening in the cliff. The cliff is at least three, 400 feet tall. And the opening itself is probably 30, 40 feet tall. You, if you ever see a picture of it, You know, humans look like small ants standing in in the opening of this large opening. And that's where the temple of Pan was built. It was built as a idol factory, in essence. They didn't actually make idols there, but they worshipped a false god. 
this Roman temple to pawn the God of shepherds. In Jesus's day, when he's there with the disciples, it's a site of active idolatry, people worshiping a false God. Also in Jesus's day, at the back of the opening, this is not the case today for different reasons, but at the back of the opening was this crevice that just dropped off into a large pool of water at the bottom. In fact, as part of your worship to Pond, people would bring their animal sacrifices to Pond, and then they would throw the animal carcass off that crevice into the pool of water below. And if you saw blood flow into the stream outside, you knew that your sacrifice had been accepted to your God. Additionally, before it was a Roman temple, it was a worship site for various Mesopotamian gods. And it was believed that this crevice in the pool were a gateway to the underworld of Hades. It was a gateway to hell. It is this spot, the one I've just described to you, are very near that spot where Jesus takes his disciples for what we have just read. Jesus takes the disciples to a spot of active idolatry with inside of it, if not actually watching the pagans worshiping a false god and asking the disciples, who do men say I am? Are you getting the weightiness of this moment, the gravity of what Jesus is doing? They are watching active idolatry, Gentiles doing what stinking Gentiles do, worshiping a false god. And the great I am ask, who do people say I am? Here in front of this rock, this gateway to hell, Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. Here, Jesus has his double word play when he says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This was a massive rock that this worship center was built on. And Jesus, looking at it, looks at Peter, says, and on this rock, your confession of me is the Christ, I will build my church. Well, if Jesus had just said that, if he had just said that standing in front of this temple, that on this rock I will build my church, that would have been enough. I mean, it's brazen, it's bold, it's bodacious, it's barefaced, it's defiant. But Jesus goes even further than that. In his brazen defiance of hell, he stands in front of the gateway to hell and declares the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Make no mistake, this is an invasion declaration. Jesus Messiah is declaring war on hell. And he just told them, I'm coming. This is Jesus's Wyatt Earp moment. The famous marshal of Tombstone is infamous for the shootout at the OK Corral. But after the OK Corral, there was the Tombstone train station event. At least in the movie, as the conflict between the Earps and the Cowboys escalated, the Cowboys decided to take out the Earps. They shot Wyatt's brother Morgan and while he was playing pool, and at the same time, another cowboy is lying in wait for the other brother, Virgil, and shoots him. Morgan dies within minutes, and Virgil is maimed for life. In response, Wyatt puts all the family on a train that night, 
along with Morgan's dead body and Virgil's half-dead body, trying to evacuate them before the cowboys can come back. Wyatt, expecting an ambush there at the train station by the cowboys so they can come and finish the job, is there watching with some of the deputies. And as two of the cowboys approach the train, Wyatt kills two of them, and the third one runs away. And as he does, Wyatt yells out, You tell Ike I'm coming, and I'm bringing hell with me. This is Jesus' Wyatt Earp moment. He stands in front of the temple of Pan with its gateway to hell and says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You can almost hear it, can't you? With the same resolute fire as Earp on that train platform, you can hear Jesus say, Lucifer, I'm coming, and there ain't nothing in hell that can stop me. The difference between Wyatt and Jesus, though, is where Wyatt leaves a trail of dead bodies, Jesus leaves a trail of empty graves. Where Earp brings retribution, Jesus brings redemption. And where while Wyatt is taking no prisoners, Jesus is setting prisoners free. And so here we are. The church built on the rock of confession. The church victorious is the church kicking down the doors of hell. Each time you and I walk in the humility of Christ, in the physical realm, to share the hope of Jesus, we are, in the spiritual realm, kicking down the prison doors of hell and setting prisoners free. Not by my power, but by the power of the blood, we liberate the captives of hell. This is where I love Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? The third verse is the very image of the hell door kicking Jesus. Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin's nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, just die for me. Time does not permit me to tell the whole story of what happened between this moment in Matthew chapter 16 and today's activities at Bonus. So let me just quickly tell you the end of the story. On that day, when Jesus spoke those words in front of the temple of Pan, tens, maybe hundreds of people came to the temple of Pan to worship a false god. Today, this day, hundreds, if not thousands, came to the same site and worshipped. However, no one worshipped ponds today. There ain't no pond worship happening at Bonus today. Today, all the people that were at Bonus were worshipping Jesus. People come by the hundreds to see the spot where Jesus proclaimed, On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And there they worshiped Jesus. Day after day after day they come to worship Jesus. The hundreds that came today will not be the same hundreds that come tomorrow. And every day a never-ending stream of Jesus worshipers. Busload after busload of men, women, and children. 
from every tribe and tongue and nation. Come to this side and worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That is the church of Jesus Christ invading and overtaking the dominion of evil. And this is what we do every time we share the love of Jesus. We're kicking open the prison doors of hell and being Jesus's agents of liberation to those trapped in sin and darkness. This is the church victorious. This is the church defiantly standing in front of hell and kicking open the doors. I will leave you with this image in your minds. As Jesus defiantly proclaims on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In my mind's eye, I can see Jesus saying those words and then under his breath, saying so softly that the disciples can't hear it, but so loudly the demons can't escape it. In my mind's eye, I can hear Jesus say, and Lucifer, I'll see you at the cross. This is our Jesus. This is his victory. And we worship and live in that victory.